0: So in the in the early '90s, uh, yeah, I like I like electronics. Anybody who knows me, I was a web developer. I grew up under. I'm the son of a computer programmer, and when he learned computer programming, uh, they didn't have degrees for that. Okay, you were like a mathematics person who learned to <clears throat> to do programming. My dad can pro. You know, I think my dad could still understand, or at least at one point he could understand machine language. You know, so if you've never seen that, that's ones and zeros and stuff. And so that's some crazy stuff when you think about it. How lo- how far things have come. I never got interested in. Uh, too interested in it until the early 90s when everybody could go buy a computer, you know. we go into Best Buy, which was an up-and-coming store uh, we had locally, and then I discovered Circuit City. And Circuit City's an interesting story because I would go into Circuit City, and during, there was a season there where Circuit City was the place, uh, place to go. And, and, and the, what I liked about them at the time better than Best Buy was the service they would give. We I mean, to get somebody who was really knowledgeable helping you. But I don't remember when it was exactly, but I remember maybe a few years later after I started buying products there and checking out stuff and my wife trying to rein me in, please don't buy another electronic device to land on the you know, trash heap of life, um, or the recycle bin of life in this case. Um, uh, there was a point there where the service seemed to diminish massively. They kind of changed the look of the store. I didn't realize there was an underlying thing that happened, but eventually, of course, most of you know, they went bankrupt. And if they bankrupt, they had to close all their stores. And they tried to go online, and that, that seemingly failed. You know, they came a little too late to the online game. And here, here's the point I, w- I want to make to you, is that I remember just recently I was looking up about the demise of Circuit City. And somebody in the article wrote, the problem with Circuit City is they failed to see the handwriting on the wall. Handwriting on the wall. What an interesting expression. Like, what's that mean? Well, when most people say handwriting on the wall, they're mean, they, they failed to see kind of the impending doom or the, the sense of what was coming. They, they couldn't anticipate the storm that they were about to face. And because of that, they went under. But did you know that actually comes from some place in the Bible? In fact, the expression itself is a biblical thing that happened to a king named King Belshazzar. And I'm gonna read the story to you from Daniel 5, 1, 9. But before I do, I want you to understand something. King Belshazzar was, this, was the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered literally all the known world at that time that, that anybody could chart out in proximity of Israel. He owned all the real estate everywhere. The Bible tells us he became lifted up with pride, and so God humbled him, made him go crazy, made him eat like, uh, uh, like a cow and, and an ox you know, out in the field. This, this king, this respectable man, just kind of went nuts for a while. And after a seven-year period or whatever, he comes back to his mind. God God restores him. He humbles himself. He tells everyone, hey, this is my story. I was proud. I was arrogant. We need to humble ourselves. We need to serve God. His son, Belshazzar, knows this story. And here's where our story picks up. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 through 9, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine... And by wine, I want to use this as symbolic for some things of us like, while Belshazzar was enjoying carefree living, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. Now you got to understand, this would have been equivalent to mocking God in that day. They were mocking God. They were like, "Ah, but my father went in and conquered this God, but he knew the story. That same God, the only reason your father could do it is because he was judging Israel and he allowed your father to do it. And your father made that clear. You're a king. You would know this history, but he didn't care. He just mocked God. I want you to know God will not be mocked. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You know what that represents? They were praising, it was, that represents a type of, of, of praising my own human effort, strength, or work. Work as hard as I want, earn as much as I want, do whatever I want. Well, suddenly, something happened. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand of the royal palace. Like, I don't know what that looked like. That had to look crazy though, right? Fingers just <laughs> up on your wall. And I mean, I don't know what you'd be doing, but let me tell you what he did. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were rocking. You know, I'm <laughs> serious, that's what it just happened. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, And and, and he said to these wise men, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. You can look for the world's solutions to spiritual issues and they don't have the answers. I don't think the world has the answers to much, to be honest. If it's based on what I see on mainstream media, those guys are out to lunch. They're just out, they're not even out to lunch, right? You'll, at some point, you have to come to God, and that's what Belshazzar did. He said, is there not anyone, and his, his wife comes in, or, his, or I guess it was a mother or whatever, it was a, it doesn't, it's not real clear, but anyway. Uh, a lady in his life, comes in and says, hey, don't be afraid, there's this man Daniel and the spirit of God's in him and he can interpret this for you. So they go get Daniel. He's a man who knew God in his generation and he knew what God was saying. So I want to see if we can learn from what he interpreted to this king because in some ways, there's a handwriting on the wall of all of our lives, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an end at some point. This is what Daniel says. And Daniel, he says, here's what it means. Here's what the words mean, king. Daniel 5:26. The first word that was written on the wall was mene, M-E-N-E. He said, it means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. What do we learn from this? We learn our days are numbered, right? Let me give you some encouraging news this morning. You're going to die. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. I'm so glad I came to church today. It can be good news if you live in the light of that reality. Daniel, is next verse, 527 Is Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. It's interesting that he uses scales because in their day, a scale was meant to show integrity of a purchase. Right? If if I was going to buy, say I was going to buy some item and it weighed, I'm going to buy a, a, you know, a pound of meat. Well, then we'd put a another pound of gold or a pound of silver, a pound of whatever it was. And this it could be a pound of money. They would weigh it. They're saying your life's not matching up, King. You've been put. On a scale, and you've been weighed, and you've been found lacking something. You've been found wanting. What's he communicating? King Belshazzar, your life is out of balance. I wonder how many of our lives are out of balance this morning. Then Daniel 5:28, Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians as a result. You know, as, you know, in other words, as a result of God numbering the days of your reign and bringing it to an end, as a result of your out of balance life and your inappropriate use of your stewardship of your life, inappropriate use of your leadership, your kingdom's divided is given to the Medes and the Persians. What's he telling us? That the misuse of our time and energy and resources will ultimately cost us something. Now, so here's the question. For you, this king. This is how this king is remembered forever. The handwriting on the wall of his life wasn't just that he saw a supernatural hand write on a wall. That in the Bible, it has been written about him forever. Who he was, who he who he is, and who he was. And here's a question I have for you: What's being written on the wall of your life? How will you be remembered? Because there's most certainly a moment in history where something will be written about your life, right? It's your tombstone. <laughs> it's your headstone. Some of you have heard me tell a story about my son Josiah when he got uh, caught into some complicated times and some sinful living and some of those things. And he came back uh, and he was, we had a little two week moment where he said, Dad, I want you to disciple me. I said, Really? Okay. We're going to a discipleship, uh, a, a, you know, a crash course, mini discipleship. I said, the First day I took him out to a graveyard. <laughs> He's like, What are we doing out here? I said, You'll see. no I I just said I want to show you something he said and he said was this one of those kind of end of life things I said kind of I said I want you to walk around I want you to look at the tombstones I want you to see what's written about each person and so he did he came back about seven ten minutes later we met up and he said what'd you what'd you learn Said, not much he said I just saw that that uh the day their names and the dates they lived and I'm like exactly that's exactly right there's very little to remember any of these people that are in this graveyard by except their name And the period they occupied the earth. Here's the question I have, son. What did they do while they were here? No man really knows. God knows. And so when you get to this place, look around, son, because this, the beginning of your discipleship journey is the end. This is the end of all men. What is going to matter the day that you are here? And my son was like, uh, that I was pleasing to the Lord, and I said, that's right that you were pleasing to the Lord. In other words, in a series where we're talking about priorities and how to live a life that matters, all that ultimately matters is that you were pleasing to the Lord. Not that you made everybody else happy in your life. Not that you even made yourself happy in your life. But that ultimately you pleased the Lord with the one who gave you your life. See, a life that matters is one that left a legacy. In fact, in my opinion, everyone leaves a legacy. You just leave a good one, or you leave a bad one. No one leaves a good legacy on accident. I walked a long life. I just accidentally left a huge impact on everybody I knew. And a good one at that, wow. No one, no one does that by accident. Because the, the, the basic default nature for all of us is self-centeredness, self-serving, which means my impact on others is going to be taking from them instead of giving to them. I want you to ponder that for, again, real slow. Your basic human default, my basic human default, apart from intentionality, intentionally changing it, is to, to live focused on self and therefore I'm making withdrawals out of the lives of the people I'm around. And there's this mindset that we can, well, you know, life needs to be about compromise and 50-50 and win-win. Well, I'm all about win-win, but I start win-win. I look at you thinking, how can I make this a win for that person? It doesn't start with me saying, if you help me, then I help you. That's not the way I work. Because that you will never leave an impact. If, you say, if you're waiting for everyone else to initiate something on your life, when will it start after all? Well, you go first, now you go first. After you, no, after you. Have you ever saw Chip and Dale, a little chipmunk cartoon when you were little? I'm showing my age. All the young people are like, nope. But they go back and forth. After you, they were always trying to, it seemed like they were trying to prefer each other, but really the irony, they were trying to show the craziness of when people go on and on like that, what ultimately happens is no one pays the bill. I'm waiting to see if they'll pay the bill. Why are you waiting to see if they'll pay the bill? Impact their life, man. See, legacy is it's the impact you on the world it's the impact you leave on the world because of who you are and how you lived your legacy is the difference you made and making a difference is not an accident making a difference is a premeditated choice it's intentional and I know for so many of you that your life feels so out of control right? You say, But I would love to leave an impact. I would love to do that. I want to live with the end in mind. I want to prioritize good things that glorify God. Like when I look across this room, I believe you are mostly good-willed people in here. Why are you at church at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning? You're wanting something for God, from God, in your relationship with God. I think you're good-willed people, but I think we get stuck sometimes. And sometimes we don't know how we got there. Sometimes we do know how we got there. I know how I got most of my messes now. Lydia and I were hanging out with some precious friends, a couple last night who have done well in business. They don't have any children at this time, but they're still trying to understand from God how how to use what God gave them and how how to make a difference in this life. And if they watch this, this is for them. And if you're in the same place, this is for you. This morning I want to look at how to get control of us because we said, "Hey, we're going to look at priorities. How to live a life that matters." Lydia last week focused on what matters. I want to focus on how, and how to do that. We'll, we'll review a little bit of what Lydia did here first. And that, so, my, but the first thing we need to do to live a life that matters is we need to remove excuses for why you cannot make a difference in your generation. You need to remove excuses. You know, uh, Moses in Exodus 4, this is what Lydia was referring to last week. In verse 1 through 5, it says, when God was calling Moses, Moses was resisting the call of God. Anybody else ever feel that way? And Moses protested. What if they won't believe me or listen to me, right? God calls you. He tells you to do something. You're like, why would they even listen to me? That's where Moses was at. Who am I that anyone would listen to me? I remember being there when God called me, and I'm in my early 20s. You're going to be a preacher. I'm like, nobody's going to listen to me. Are you kidding me? Moses says, What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? And the Lord asked him, What? The Lord asked, the Lord turned to Moses and said, Moses, what's in your hand? The shepherd's staff. Okay, what was in his hand was what he did his occupation with. It's the what he did every day, you know, it's what he used to to shepherd goats. And And so he says, The shepherd's staff, Moses replied, Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw it on the ground. And it turned into a snake. And he goes, Whoa! Jumps back. Then the Lord told him, Reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. And then he says to him, Perform this sign, so the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. Here's what we learn from this story when God calls you to do something from him, he'll take what's in your hand. You know what that means? That he explained it last week. If you want to go back and listen, her whole message is kind of based on this. He'll take what's in your life, your giftings, your talents, your personality, the very way he made you. He'll take what's in your hand if, listen, if and when you offer it to him. In other words, Moses always had that staff. What he didn't always have was God taking it and breathing on it, God taking it and supernaturally empowering what he does in the natural. God supernaturally empowered and took the natural ability and made it, listen, and made it a supernatural one. There's this mindset that when God gets a hold of my life, He's going to change me completely from what I was. So if you're a really good businessman, I know I've known some guys that are amazing businessmen that left the business world to go follow God. I'm like, why didn't you impact people right where you were at, man? Yeah. Yeah. Some are called out. Don't get me wrong; you need to obey God. But my point is, is they they weren't obeying God. They what was really happening was they were have felt this hunger and a desire to make a difference. And they couldn't see where they were at, how to do that. Moses was caught in that place. He's like, I don't know how to make a difference with what I got. And he says, what's in your hand? It's my business. What's in your hand? It's my kids I'm parenting. What's in your hand? It's my relationships, my friendships. What's in your hand? And then he's like, and and so so Moses, and so God says to him, will you surrender that to me? And let me show you what I can do with it. Surrender your business, surrender your children, surrender your relationships, surrender your money, surrender your time, surrender everything. Let me supernaturally touch it and I will blow your mind with the difference and impact you can make when you surrender it. You're responsible to serve God with what you have, not what you don't have. There's this weird mindset like God's expecting you to serve him with what you don't have, but that's not what he wants. He wants you to serve him with what's in your hand, what's in your life, and then he'll increase it. You know, there's a couple stories in the Bible that also validate this. There, you know, at one point, Jesus came upon the disciples. they have been fishing all night, trying to catch fish. And, they, and so Jesus comes up and says, hey guys, what you up to? He's yelling off the shore. Trying to catch fish, man, bad, bad night. They probably look saggy eyed, you know, rings around the eyes, frustrated they caught nothing. Yeah, have didn't catch anything. They took what's in their hand. Jesus said, hmm, What's in your hand? A net? Throw it over the other side. You'll have a big catch. Now, I want to tell you something. When you've been living with what's in your hand over and over again, and you've not seen anything produced, it becomes very easy to doubt anything. Good. Will come if you do it again. Anybody else ever been there? And what's important in that moment is not that you trust your experience previously, not that you trust yourself and your understanding, but that you trust God when he says, throw it over to the other side for a big catch and you go, yes, sir. Now, I want you to know, it wasn't like for them. They just pulled their nets in and cleaned up everything, all right? He's asking them to make a mess again. He's asking them to exert a little effort, this time with faith in what he is saying. And so they throw it over and what happens? The fish, I think the fish just jumped in there like, where's the target? We've been sent by God, fish on a mission. They jump right in the net. What's your purpose in life, little fish? To blow apostles' minds. Hoorah! You know, they just jump in, and, and they're grabbing. Oh, my Marines here tonight. Hoorah! Anyway, so, so, they, so, they, so they, they, pull, they pull this in, the, the net splitting. And Jesus said, look, you see what happened there? I'm going to call you to be fishers of men. I'm going to take your natural talent. I'm going to supernaturally breathe on it, and you're going to do what you've been doing for your natural occupation. You're going to do for a higher purpose. You're going to make a difference with what I've given you. Loaves and fishes, right? The boy, the people are all out. You got a big crowd. You got 5,000 men, it says, and, and a bunch of, it says, aside from women and children. Let's just say there's on a the low side, 15,000 people out in this field Jesus has been preaching to. That's a big church. I'm just saying, anyway, Jesus is out there talking, and he's he'd been teaching, and he's been out there for several days. And the apostles finally say to Jesus, Jesus, man, these people are, it's been three days. They haven't eaten anything, they're hungry. He's thinking they've been eating the word of bread of life, but hey, whatever. So so he said, they've been hungry. He says, they say, send them to town to get something to eat. Jesus says, you give them something. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you've identified the problem? There's a lot of people who feel gifted to identify the problem. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, I know all of you in here, Okay. Or, you're, or you identify the problem behind our back. You're talking to somebody else. Or, or, or maybe in another circle. See, for some reason, all of us have been gifted to identify the problem. But do we have faith that we can be the answer to the problem where a difference needs to be made? She says, you give them something to eat. We don't have any. We got like, like two loaves and a few fish. He says, bring it to me. What? Take that natural thing, that what's in your hand, bring it to me. Brings it to them. He multiplies. They fed the whole multitude of people. Quit making excuses about why you can't make a difference in your generation. Take what you have, submit it to Jesus. You're either going to make excuses or you're going to make a difference. That's all the options there are. Second thing we need to do is, once we're done making excuses, we need to focus on what matters most. What got me, the reason we're doing this series is I was in a prayer meeting at 6 a.m. one morning. And and after an evening prayer meeting on on a Monday night, I just taught, uh, like a week ago, I just talked to the prayer people and said, you know, when I coach pastors... Most of the time when I'll ask them and they'll say, why are you growing? Or why are these things happening in your church? And what they really want me to do is tell them all the systems that we have in place that help us care for you and do those things. But I said, well, and I used to tell them that stuff, but it doesn't help if you don't have God moving. And I said, so let me ask you a question. Do you have at least one prayer meeting, one one one-hour prayer meeting a week where you yourselves show up and either lead or participate in that prayer meeting? I'm talking to senior pastors of churches. And they're like, uh, nope. Okay, I'm not, I'm 100% on that question with pastors. They all say no. In my mind, I'm wondering why. I said, well, until you start that, don't. you don't need to worry about a move of God. You're never going to have one. All right, so so I'm telling you this because then one day, the morning, uh, uh, a young man that's in our congregation, he comes to prayer almost faithfully every 6 a.m. morning. He was, he was reminded of that at some point in our conversation at 6 a.m., getting ready to pray, and he said, his parents who serve in another church went to some of the elders of that church and said, hey, we should, in the light of that, they heard me, the parents heard me say that. They're like, we should start a prayer meeting, you know, and, and, and once a week. And one of the other elders, the other elders said to them, no, we're never going to do that. People's schedules are too full. You know, we just don't have enough time. And I looked at him and I said, Look, see, I said, I said, you see my face? There's no shock in this face. I've heard this over and over again. Here's the reality of it. We all have a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of time that we operate from. And I want you to see this, uh, please put the graphic up. You have a certain amount of energy uh, that you operate from. I drew two different circles. On one of those circles, you have eight uh, little arrows going different directions, right? That one arrow in the second circle is the, is the exact same amount of distance as all those eight put together. What's the point? The point is, is when you focus your energy on something, you can go further than you ever will if you scatter it across eight different things. Wow. Yeah. Right? And all of us feel that first circle and it's got more than eight arrows. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like I've got, at least I do, I've got like, mine would have 16 or 20 a day. That's not even a week. You know what I'm saying? It's just, that's how many distractions and things Pull at us. And now listen, hear me. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this crystal clear. Can I have your undivided attention for just a second? If you don't tell your life where to go, someone else will. And that, and that, circle, that, that circle that was up there, you're going to have eight different arrows going different directions, right? That's all representative of, of people's telling their, somebody else telling your life where to go by and large it's not it's, it's the it's the advertisers that want you to get online and get distracted by what they're putting in your face it's the it's the friend that that wants you to do something for them that is menial or wasn't a part of what you were planning and it's not that they're not a friend it's just that you know whatever you, you want to help them but they're they're kind of inconsiderate in their planning and timing and everything lack of planning on their part becomes an emergency on yours you know what I'm saying anybody got friends like that other than me okay sometimes I am that friend anyway Uh and so that circle represents not just energy. It represents time. It represents energy. It represents your money. It represents your resources. It represents all that God's given you, and you can, you're going to have to, take, to focus it to make it go the direction that you want it to go. You only have a limited amount of energy, time, and money at your disposal to invest in life. Which means if you're going to focus on what matters there's an implication that you actually know what matters. Are you following me? If I asked you right now, hey, what's most important in life? I would think it would be things like, what matters, people matter. Relationships matter. My son Josiah at the graveyard discovered eternity matters. We put so much energy on whatever it is we're enjoying in this life, and we can miss out on the bigger picture of what's gonna matter forever. And the problem with so many people, it's like, it's like if you let your health get out of control, if I, if I eat wrong for generations, so I don't know how I eat, it did not matter how I eat, until you have that heart attack and then you need like four stents put in, right? Then suddenly, whoops, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I guess it did matter. Well, it's a little late to be figuring that out then, right? I mean, I guess if you live through it, it's not, but Jesus matters. And so here's the question I have for you. When God looks at your use of time, energy, money, does he see a life that shows you values what matter most? Does he see a life that shows you value people? Does he see a life that shows you value eternity or Jesus or you like this fool here in the scriptures in Luke chapter 12? Then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And he said, I know. I'll tow down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You're going to die this very night then who will get everything you work for? Jesus goes on to finish this. Here's his conclusion of the message. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Let me ask you another question. Are you working at your relationship with God? Or are you just working? If you have a limited amount of resources and you want to invest in what matters, you need to reduce non-essentials in your life. Now, notice I said reduce; I didn't say completely eliminate. And you've got to be able to identify what's essential and what's non-essential. So, part of the how-to is after I remove excuses and I begin to, and I want to focus. I need, and I know what matters. Then I've got to reduce what doesn't matter, what's not essential. Does that make sense? Ever since we started our 6 a.m. prayer meeting, Lydia and I, Justin, we were going to bed at 11 almost every night. We've pushed our bedtime back to like 9.30. Why? 6 a.m. matters to me. Because to live a life that matters, I believe I need to live a life of prayer. And as a lead pastor of Lifeway Church, I need to be there. I need to be standing in the place of prayer. I need to come meet with God. My superpower is asking for help. What's your superpower? I go. Here's my superpower. Help God! That's my superpower. What's yours? I don't come out to you strong. I sound strong. I'm, I'm a weak man who needs grace. I bet this room is filled with a lot of weak people that need grace. It starts with, I tell people, our prayer meetings are not about how excellent we sound praying. Listen to me pray. I pray so awesome. That's not what it's about. Every prayer meeting is simply Lifeway Church saying, we need your help, God. We can't do this without you, God. You're what this is about, God. This is where I get course corrections. You wouldn't believe how many messages and how many course corrections happen in those 6 a.m. prayer meetings. And and, you know, I didn't, we like, we have certain shows we like, whether it's on Netflix or some little thing, you know. uh, I I could say some of the stuff we watch, but you'd be shocked, like, (gasps) like The Masked Singer. Anybody ever watch The Masked Singer? That is a hilarious, weird show. So anyway. And I watch it with my daughter, Carissa, because I'm building relationship while doing this. We love that kind of stuff. But we, Carissa now, is at a place, because she values a 6 a.m. meeting. It's 9 o'clock. I'm like, come on, let's catch up on the, I've got it recorded on the DVR. Let's watch it. She's like, no, Dad, we're going to bed now. <laughs> 6 a.m., hoorah. And I'm like, all right. Yes, ma'am. You know, so. Understand, our relationship with God is absolutely essential. Netflix is not, which leads to the next action. We need to prioritize what matters most? And I, want to, I got an illustration. When I, Lydia and I, uh, a few years back, we were, both of us have gone to the Franklin Covey seminar where we, we saw Stephen Covey uh, do this thing, and it really helped me wrap my mind around time. So this, this jar represents the limited capacity of your life. You got 24 hours in a day. You got 168 hours in the week. When people in that other elder at another church says, we don't got time for prayer, friend, you got as much time as I got. What you really meant was we don't value prayer. And so what we value should be, our values, the things we value the most should be in the container of our life. Would you agree with that statement? Okay, so I want you to see these pebbles. These pebbles represent all the non-essentials in your life. It could be, I had a friend, Shannon, Shannon Eaton, a pastor in Florida. He said, people say, I don't have time to pray. I read my Bible. And he said, what would the screen time app on your phone say? Right? There's, there's a lot of things I could do in social media. I'm not saying that stuff's bad. Remember, reduce, don't eliminate necessarily, but they do become non essential if they're competing with things that are important. Right? It could be the phone calls that you didn't need to take, it could be all the mindless uh, surfing in the web. It could be, I don't know. I don't know what your things are. Definitely some, you know, when I was growing up, I used to watch my mom and her friends watch these stupid soap operas that I had. I'm like, that's not even good acting, you know? And so, um, and so you have this—you have these things that represent non-essentials, and oftentimes these things have a tendency to get in our life first. And these black rocks represent all the important things in our life. They're the important phone call that you need to make. They're that—they're that time you need to, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe something that needs to be done at the right time. Certain projects that need to be done, right? And those things compel—they call us and compel us. And then pretty soon we lose sight. We don't have time then, or we're trying to figure out how to fit in the things that aren't just. Uh, non-essential, not just important, but are absolutely essential to our lives. How about this one? This big, this big rock. This represents our relationship with God. Time in the Bible, time in prayer, time in worship, time in church, time growing and knowing Christ and discovering our purpose and all that stuff. What about my relationships because this is my capacity. I can't go top past the lid. There's 24 hours a day, not 25. I can't make another one. How about relationships? Can I fit that in my container? I did it. Kind of. All right? So, okay, I managed to fit relationships. Yay, kids. Right, Krista? All right? How about how about Rest? Rest. How many of us rest? You know, rest, taking a Sabbath, a day to rest in the Lord. You know what the, the, the importance of doing that is? I don't mean just coming to church. People say, I come to church. That's my Sabbath. But then you go work hard. all. No, no, no. You need a day where you stop, where you remember who God is in your life. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. You're not God. All that cool stuff that happens in your life, it's not because of you. It's because you partner with God, if you're doing it right. If it's because of you and you're not partnering with God, that stubble straw and hay that'll burn with the earth, that's, that means that's, that you're doing something that doesn't matter. If you're doing something that matters, then God's the senior partner. And you're joining that. He, 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 your senior partner, just like I pretty much command our employees to have a day of rest, a day off, God, I got that idea from God. You know what I'm saying? We need rest. Does it fit? I'm having difficulties here. Mm-hmm. Oh, can't rest. Okay. How about health? Exercise right? Eating right. Sometimes our lives get out of order. We haven't, we're not taking care of this vessel so we can worship God longer. Lydia talked about that last week. Oop, I managed to fit that in. Praise the Lord. How, how about giving? You know, people act like being generous is an accident. And, and so they don't, they, they, they wait, just like they hear, they get to the end of this thing and they say, hmm, I will try to, I'll give to God when I, when I, out of what I have left over. And I'm like, man, no, he's a big rock in my life. God's one of the first people I give to fit that in, barely. How about serving? Well, I don't got much time, man. I want to serve in my local church. Can I fit that in here? No chance. Serving, I can't serve. How about a vacation? Can I squeeze a vacation in after all that? Let's see. No. So I can't rest. I can't serve. I can't take a vacation. Maybe your priorities are different. Some of you, you'd get all that in, right? But then this one would come out. Now, what if I told you you could just change your priorities, that, that in fact, priorities, the order that you do stuff in actually makes a difference. Like what if I started by looking at this big rock as the cornerstone of my life and foundationally, I'm gonna start with God. I'm gonna give God time. I'm gonna spend time in the word. I'm gonna spend time in prayer. I'm gonna invest in the relationships that are closest to me and I'm gonna make sure that I get good times in with my family. And then I wanna make sure that I'm getting adequate rest uh, and, and, and so I can contemplate and hear from God my next steps. And then, of course, I want to make sure I'm serving and giving, and I make sure those things are added to my life. And then, of course, I need to maintain my health, so I begin to try to eat right, eat the right foods, eat the right things, get some exercise in. And when it's all said and done, take a vacation. All right? Well, those important things still come, and so we have to deal with those things. But because I got my big rock in there's a sense of peace that I have in my heart that I've done what I'm made to do. You know what I'm talking about? Because in Lifeway, we talk to you about discovering your purpose, finding your purpose, discovering your purpose, living in the freedom of that purpose, and doing what God made you to do. And then when all those other non-essential things come your way, those are not essential. I don't even need those in my life. I'll get you in there. <laughs> Somehow, when I changed my priorities, I could not only fit God in, my important relationships, my health, my vacation, whatever, and I'd manage the important things next, we'll find a way to manage non-essential things however we do, are you following me? All of us, have the same amount of time, we may have different amounts of resources, But fundamentally, you're working on the same thing. Does that make sense? Here's the point of this illustration. Order determines capacity. Have you ever noticed, I mean, okay, so I'm going to talk to young adults. Young adult, mostly men, but I know some girls are into it too. I know a lot of young adults, man, you're into video games. Video games are recreation. They're not occupation, unless they are your occupation. Some people, that probably is somewhere, but that's not normal. Most people are making their occupation. Those people are a small number of people are making their occupation, giving you recreation, as it were. And, and if it if you find yourself enslaved to something that you can't walk away from, it's one thing if I go play a board game for an hour or two hours, you know, I like Settlers of Catan. I can play those with friends. I can walk away from that. If I become obsessed and stuck and can't break free, friends, that's an addiction. I don't care how you slice it. And what it's happening is it that that uh, uh, thing that's non-essential is robbing you of the essential things and the important things in your life. Jimmy, are you saying I can't have video games? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be- begin with first things first. Start with God. Add important relationships. Make sure you're working heartily as unto the Lord, as the Scripture says. Then provision will come in. Then you can begin to give and worship God with your money. You can begin you give some time and worship that way. And then that non-essential thing that you love to do, do it. Have fun doing it because your life is now in order. Why? Because order determines how much it determines your capacity. And here's the question I have for you in the light of that. What are you letting get in the way of the things that matter most? What's getting in the way of your relationship with God? What's getting in the way of your relationship with your spouse or your children? If you don't spend time with them when it matters to them, they'll not spend time with you when it matters to you. Some of, you will, will sh- Some of you older ones will know what I'm the song I'm talking about. Some of you younger ones won't. But the lyrics go something like this. When I was growing up, there was a guy who had a song, and the song went, uh, 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 the cat in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue, a uh, man on the moon, when you're coming home, dad. And the dad responds to the son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. Well, that was a a song of a generation, a generation of parents who started working hard. My dad was one of those people. He's a phenomenal, hardworking man, took great care of us. We never lacked in any good thing in our household. But the one thing I was missing was time with him. He'd work 40, but beyond 40, he worked 60, 70, 80, sometimes up to 100, 100 plus hours a week, fall asleep at his computer terminal, wake back up and go back to work. He, He didn't have time for me. And, and, and I felt the, the emptiness of that. I remember listening to that song growing up, thinking in my heart, you know, someday he's gonna want time with me and I'm not gonna give it to him. I'm gonna do to him what he did to me. Revenge kind of comes up in our heart. I, I didn't think of it as vengeful back then because that was just the world's way of thinking. But the latter part of the song, it does change and it shifts. And the dad wants time with the son. And it says, cat in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, son? I don't know when, dad but we'll get together there. You know we'll have a good time then. Generational stuff got passed down, and one generation repeats the next generation. In my 30s, I had this revolutionary thing that happened in my heart where God took me on a journey to forgive my dad, honestly, for things he didn't even know he did. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. There are things that people that love us in our lives did. They didn't mean to do it to us. My dad didn't wake up and meticulously go, hmm, what can I do to reject my son and make him feel terrible? To make him feel purposeless and empty when he looks at me to not know what to say or how to talk to me? I know. I'll just work and ignore him. that, That was not there. You know what happened? Things that were maybe important were taking the place of things that were essential. Are you following me? The order matters. Well, I got good news. In my 30s, I decided to call my dad. I just began to pursue it. I would tell him I love him. I wasn't waiting for him to tell me. I began to realize that when you want to make a difference, you start. You don't wait for someone else to start. You start. Well, I will be nice to them when they're nice to me. Said every dumb person ever, including me, I said it. I'm mad at you. Don't say I'm dumb. Well, I was dumb too. And you are dumb if you're thinking that way. Change doesn't happen when two people stalemate and look at each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll change. No, you have to decide. I'm going to make a difference. So we started calling, and then I worked through some forgiveness stuff, and then we'd have conversations, and I learned more of the story about my upbringing that I didn't know just recently. But I want to say this. I think my dad and I have a great relationship today. Here's why. We decided not to let the cycle dictate who we were going to be. We decided to remove excuses, right? We decided to uh, begin to focus on what matters most, and then we decided to... Uh, prioritize one another in each other's life, which leads to the fourth thing. You need to pursue what matters most. It's one thing to get a priority. Once you get it on your schedule, you need to actually do it. I open up this message talking to you about uh, this, this handwriting on the wall, right? And, and I'm asking you the question, what's being written about your life? It's interesting because God tells us in Hebrews 12 too, we need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus wants to be the author of your life. He wants to be the author. Instead of you getting a handwriting in the wall, he wants to forgive all the handwriting of requirements that was against you, the Bible says. He wants to forgive you of that, and then he wants to give you the opportunity to let him author your life. But unlike a piece of paper that I can write on that does not need to partner with the author, you have to partner with the one who created you, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again. You have to agree that he's Lord. You have to agree that he's needed. You have to agree with God. I want to give you four things you can do. You need to know Christ. We say it every Sunday. What do I mean by that? You need to intentionally put yourself in a place to meet Jesus in the scriptures. You need to quit making excuses for I don't got time to read the Bible. I don't got time. Look, you can get it, like I said, you can get it on audio. You can get it on, you can read it. There's a lot of ways you can get it, but what you gotta do is remove excuses and make time for Jesus. You need to discover your purpose. You know, God made you with a purpose, and one of the reasons you need to discover Jesus is to discover your purpose. The Bible refers to God. What are the names of God as I am? You could say it this way. I could say to God, you are I am. You are the I am. That's who you are as God. You are, I am. But listen to that, put a period after you are. You are period, therefore I am. Not I'm God, but because of who you are, determines who I am. John, John the apostle said it this way, as he, is, as he is, so are you in this world. You are, I am. Peter said, as your father in heaven is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You are holy, therefore I am holy too. See, you're trying to, so many of us, just Adam and Eve's great sin in the garden was the devil came to them and tempted them to become something they already were. He says, you know, God knows the day you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. The Bible says they were already created in the image of God. Somehow he tricked them out of their identity. When you received Jesus Christ, if you know Christ today, you were given a new identity. You were adopted into the family of God. Your past was erased and God said, let's start something new today. You need to, so you're knowing Christ is part of you discovering your purpose. You've got to start in your relationship with Jesus because out of that relationship, you discover who you are. Then you need to discover your people. That's a third thing. You need to discover your people. Who's the people you're called to run with? Who's the people you're called to do it? I believe everyone needs to be in a local church. I believe you need to be what we call a local family of, of followers of Christ and, and, and run together after a purpose and then you need to try to impact lives together with that community of people. And let me tell you how to impact lives, you ready? Here's how you impact lives. Be helpful, be helpful. It's not hard. You can impact a life by being helpful. If a kid out here shoes untied and you bend over and tie his shoe for him or her, you were just helpful. I promise you, they remember those things. They think about the nice person that helped them. And I believe God's given you some kind of distinction distinction that you can use uh, for his good and his glory and I want to help you uh, wrap your mind around it by telling you a story that I've told years ago but you we like uh, I bet 70% of you don't know this story because that's how much we've grown since I told it last but when I was two years old I was a great escape artist did you know that my mom told my mom tells me this anyway I'm sure it's true my mommy would never lie to me. And she said, we were living in Houston near NASA and we lived in this apartment complex and we had, we were kind of in a rough neighborhood and so we lived in the second story apartment and we had, uh, uh, I guess a double bolt like lock system and then some kind of little chain at the top. And as a two year old, I don't know how long I was plowing my great escape, it was probably like Alcatraz. I probably had a file in there trying to carve at my my prison bars called my crib, I don't know. But anyway, that didn't happen. But I watched them do this over and over again, and evidently I got so smart, I decided to pull up a chair up next to this door, and I unlatch, uh, undo the, the top latch, and then I unturn the bolts, I pull the chair away, I open the door, and I walk out. I go down the end of the apartment complex, I go down some stairways, which my mom says there was this like watery thing, I think it was a cesspool of some kind, but something I could have fallen into and died and didn't. I walked by it, I guess I went the other direction, navigated two swimming pools, and then ended up out in this field Near, near the road, I don't know if I was like Linus and had my blanket with me and my diaper or what. But there's this man that's driving by and his lights, it's like 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, maybe it's just really late. He drives by. I really don't know the time. I'm making that part up. He drives by and and, he's, and his lights shine and see this kid in here and he's like, oh my word, I got to get this kid. And so he goes, and he, he picks me up, not knowing really what else to do. But what he didn't do is decide it was somebody else's job to take care of this kid. He decided he was responsible. His light shine on the kid that was wandering in the field, and he determined it was his responsibility. So he grabs me and he goes knocking at every door he can at the apartment complex. He assumed it had, this kid couldn't have gotten very far. He must have come from here. He's knocking at the doors, hey, is this your kid? Nope. Can you help me find his parents? Sure. And these people start massing. And by the time they get up to my parents' cracked door, I'm sure my parents answer sheep. like, oh my word. <laughs> How many parents know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're that parent that day. You know what I'm saying? And so Uh, They they get me to my parents, and my parents are elated, they're happy. You know to do that, what that man had to do? He had to remove excuses for why he couldn't make a difference in my life, right? He had to to focus on what matters. A kid wandering in a field is a bad idea. He had to reprioritize what he was doing. I, I became more important than his sleep, and then he had to pursue it. I had a guy write into me concerning our members meeting. I let the members ask me questions about where we're going and what we're doing, and one of the guys wrote, hey, what's your your strategy for personal evangelism and global missions? You want to know what my strategy is, y'all? It's you. You're my strategy for evangelism and global missions. Here's the reality of it. You reach a circle of people I will never reach. I want you to look around. How many empty chairs do we have here? Now answer this question, why? You don't know anybody that's perishing? You don't know anybody that needs to hear? Listen, I am comfortable, and the pastors here are comfortable, preaching a message that a lot of people are not comfortable. You can become that intermediary where you bring someone. It's like when uh, uh, Andrew gets con- see, meets Jesus first, he goes and grabs his brother, Peter, and says, Peter, come check out this Jesus guy. You gotta meet him. He didn't preach the gospel to Peter. He just brought Peter to Jesus. What if you did the same thing by inviting people into your world? See, that man, in order to help me, had to be willing to be inconvenienced. Do you follow me? Jesus left the heaven. He left left heaven to come to earth to rescue us in heaven. They're worshiping him night and day. He left an environment of technology we don't understand, right? I mean, it's a lot better to just go blip, 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 like at the speed of light, blip wherever you want to. I guess that's how it works. Then ride a camel or a donkey. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to go to some foreign country to do missions. It's uncomfortable. Oh, I think it was uncomfortable for Jesus to leave heaven to come here. What do you think? It was uncomfortable for him to die on a cross for our sins and bleed out for us. It was uncomfortable as God to be rejected by men, by humans. But he did it because he loves us. You know, Jesus told a parable about leaving the 99 to go after the one. He tells a parable about leaving the 99 to go after the one. When you're the one, Him leaving the 99, Him seeking to save you, which are lost, is the most meaningful thing that'll ever happen to you in your life. Suddenly, you become important. But what happens when you're the one leaving the 99? What happens when you're the one leaving the 400 adults? Do you realize we have 400 adults that come here on a a Sunday? Do you realize if every single one of us would invite one friend, we could impact 400 lives together with minimal effort? Well, y'all are like facial paralysis. Are you think? Are you hearing me? God wants to use you to impact a life. He wants to use you to make a difference. And the greatest difference you can make in someone's life is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Give them. Don't don't decide they're going to hell. Let Jesus decide that. You decide you're going to try to reach them. That's your job. Let Jesus be judge. You be you be evangelist. You be outreacher, as it were. Would you stand to your feet? When you reach a life for Jesus Christ, when you set your priorities to make a difference, just like my parents, their hearts were moved because somebody took time to bring me back to my parents. God has moved when we bring the prodigals and the lost the prodigal's back home to their father, as it were, it's a story of the Bible, if you don't know that, and a guy who went wandering. And the lost, who never knew him, he wants to adopt them into the family of God. But what if that's you today? I mean, what if today you were invited by a friend, or what if today you wandered in here, or you've been like that two-year-old wandering, you're smart. You've planned the great escape, and you've been wandering life, and you've managed to navigate the cesspools of life and a couple swimming pools, and you're out in a dark field right now, alone in that field. I want you to know today that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, as it were, is shining that light into the dark field where you're at, reaching out, calling to you today, wanting you to come in, compelling you, please, don't perish apart from me. I want to adopt you. I want to reconcile you into the family of God. I want you. I died for you. You need this. And I want this, says the Lord. And maybe you're that lost one. I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he suffered all that uncomfortability that I talked about to give you a chance. But you got to be willing to say yes. Remember, we're you can't wait around, you can't say, well, I'm waiting for this person to do their part. Let me tell you what, Jesus already did it. When he left heaven, he came to earth, he died on a cross for your sins, he wasn't waiting around for you to save yourself. Well, when they get right with me, then I'll, whatever. They've been trying that for a couple thousand years, a few thousand years, they said, that wasn't working. I'm gonna go save them, I'm gonna go rescue them. Some of you, you need rescue today. You've lived a life of self-leadership, and I promise you, I have surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus. I was a wild, partying, crazy guy, and Jesus got a hold of my life. And when he did, he's never done me any wrong. I did myself a lot of wrong. I did a lot of people a lot of wrong, but Jesus has done me no wrong. I want to invite you to meet that guy today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you're here today... And you're saying, man, I hear you. I am stirred by what you're saying. Something in my heart. I feel that my life's been out of balance, and, and, and I don't want the handwriting on my, on my wall to be a negative one. I want to, I want like the Apostle Paul to say, I have, uh, I've, I've run the race, I've finished the race, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I, I want that trophy. I want that reward. I don't want the reward of, of separation from God. Jesus said, all you got to do is believe that He came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for your sins and rose again, that if you believe that, your sins will be wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, and your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You will be acknowledged in heaven, and He'll begin to lead your life." And maybe you're here, you've been in church your whole life, but you've not really done that at a heart level. It's not saying a prayer. It's the heart, and then saying the prayer. The heart matters, not the words. I want to invite you today to do that. If that's you today, would you raise your hand high and let me pray for you? I won't call you up. I won't embarrass you. Thanks, Jesus. I think ever love you. Wow. Wow, God, you put your hands down right now, let's pray together. And the rest of you whose priorities are a little jacked up, would you join me in this prayer? Say, God, I come to you in Jesus' name. I want my life to make a difference, like your life did. And so Jesus, I confess that you're Lord of my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to forgive me of the ways that I've not prioritized my life according to what matters most. And I pray for a season of grace where you open my understanding to know how to order my life so I can handle the capacity of what you throw my way. I want to honor you in my life and I want to make a difference. So fill me with the Holy Spirit, save me, empower me, carry me and let me glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give God thanks for those who said yes to Jesus.